I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the second season of the Netflix documentary series, High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. And you're talking about the African hand in the pot and how that African hand in the pot is the thing that ultimately defined the pot in a very different way. Today, we're talking to host Stephen Satterfield. Tracing the ingredients, flavors, and techniques of black cuisine is a walk through American history itself. From emancipation to the Great Migration, food on the tables in black homes would evolve with every step. And today, the hottest black chefs are influencing a new generation with a menu that's sometimes more than just a meal. In season two of High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America, Host Stephen Satterfield travels across the United States to uncover how African-American cuisine has fueled social justice movements, transformed communities, and awakened cultural creativity in powerful and lasting ways. Today, a new generation of first-time farmers, culinary activists, and chefs are taking up that mantle by reclaiming our cultural food practices and making a strong resurgence back to the land in order to write the next chapter of Black Liberation. And I'm joined now by host Stephen Satterfield. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, Stephen. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here, Rebecca. So you talk a little bit about your own history in the food industry in the series, and I know you are a sommelier, but can you tell me more about your training and your work in the culinary world? Sure. Um, I went to culinary school about 20 years ago after growing up watching food media, food network, the kind of onset of celebrity chef culture. And that was really in the front of my mind when I left home as a teenager. And um, when I actually got to culinary school, I got a proper appreciation for the difference between professional chefs and amateur uh, home enthusiasts like myself. So in some ways, I feel like that decision was made for me as I, you know, cooked in professional kitchens for just a few months. So the, the curriculum or the course that I ended up taking was um, hospitality in restaurant management. and um, we had an introduction to wine class as part of that curriculum. This was in Portland, Oregon, a region famous for some of the best wines on earth. So I caught the bug when I was still a teenager. Yeah, that was the most kind of important decision early in my career is getting into wine. Hmm. So I know you were a fan of Anthony Bourdain and his work revealing food and culture from different parts of the world. Um, do you see any commonalities between what he did and what you are aiming to do with your series and your work now? Rebecca, don't get me in trouble now. I, <laughs> He's a legend. Let's yeah, be fair. <laughs> let's, let's careful. Um, there's so much reverence um, that so many rightfully hold for his work. I mean, it, of course, um, like so many 
Um, and like I alluded to earlier, you know, I was very much taken by not only his work, but certainly his work and presenting a new kind of visual form on what we think about when we think about food television, um, especially in the best moments when it was really outward looking and really transportive. And, um, you know, that created so much of a sense of possibility um, on a personal level, um, as far as a, a curious traveler, um, but also as a creative, as a media maker who loved food and the desire to share more from other parts of the world that are not part of a, a dominant Western uh, Eurocentric culture it was really an incredible, I think, legacy that he helped create. So television is obviously a visual medium and the success of a great food series really hinges on the viewer understanding what it is you're tasting and what you're feeling when you sample the foods of various chefs from various places. And I'm wondering, because I think this really comes through in your series, um, how do you think about that when you're eating on camera and talking about the food itself and talking with the people who made that food? It's pretty awkward. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I'm not naturally a thespian or anything like that. I think for me, my general disposition on screen is to try to remember that it's not about me, you know, and um, I really just try to go there with um, whoever I'm with on screen. You can't go wrong. This oh, fall off the bone. It's very tender. Yeah. I don't actually need the knife is the truth. No, you don't. This is good. Mm. I don't even need my teeth, actually. Turns out, <laughs> either all gums. <laughs> um, it's most often someone who is talking about, you know, the thing that matters most to them in life. Um, since we're talking about food, you know, and in a sense, we're talking to each other about the thing that matters most to us in life. And so um, that helps me in a way just... Uh, forget to as much as one can forget that they're being filmed for a television show. Um, and so that's kind of like how I, how I carry it when I'm, when I'm hosting. So in season one, you trace historically black culinary influences from Africa to the South. Where do you pick up in season two? Yeah. So the, the fourth episode from season one ends with emancipation. We learn about Juneteenth, um, and this kind of Emancipation Day celebration. And that episode really was um, a journey that started off uh, in the first episode in Benin in West Africa. So we take a literal voyage, a chronological voyage in time and story and tradition. Um, and this season picks up um, in that same sort of format. Um, here we begin in Louisiana, um, just outside of New Orleans. Um, during the period known as Reconstruction, so after emancipation, um, we get an incredible history lesson from Dr. J in Louisiana. And then from there, we move into modern history, into a contemporary context from, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, the Great Migration, the Civil Rights Movement, um, and ultimately the, the movement and activism of those working in the food space today. So you do have a guide in both seasons, as you mentioned, Dr. J. That's Dr. Jessica Harris. Uh, she wrote the book High on the Hog, That's which great. inspired the series. Can you talk about what her participation brings to the project? Oh, I mean, everything. Um, I think most critically, the fact that 
there would be no project without her scholarship. We also find women very much involved in things. And they would sell kala, a rice fritter that comes straight out of Western Africa. And they would cook them to order. And then they would sell them kala, kala, bel, kala, tushu, moin, ganyan, kala. You know, for those who don't know, Dr. Jessica B. Harris, and even though she gets really mad when I say this, it's true. She is um, one of the, if not the foremost um, scholar on African diasporic foodways. Um, she's written about 19 books um, and is really a font of knowledge and genius on many topics, but including and especially on Black diasporic foodways. So, you know, High on the Hog, um, the book is, of course, what made the series possible. And seeing her on screen, of course, this all comes through effortlessly and you see her brilliance and her dynamism on screen. But it's also just about, I think, being among elders and really kind of the traditions and legacies that are held, especially in this context within, you know, Black families and communities. And her presence allows many of us who, for a variety of reasons, have been disconnected from our elders, a means of an engagement that feels familiar and familial in a way that she feels like all of our elders, you know, all of our mothers or aunties or grandmothers. So it's an honor uh, to be on screen with her. And um, I think people, I mean, yeah, will just really love and uh, learn so much from the scenes that she's in. I think it's really important that she also, I think, uh, sets the scene for hearing stories that I think sometimes surprise you, too, because I think that your mind is very open to hearing things because she sort of puts you in this learning mode. And one of the things that happens in New Orleans, I think one of the things I was fascinated to hear and watch you learn was a surprising lesson on the origins of Creole food. Um, can you talk about that and and some of the things that you learned when you were in that particular place? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, reading about something and then being in the space, especially when food can be a teacher or a vessel for for learning and teaching, those moments are really informative and transformative. It comes from Spanish word, criar, which is to create, to be, to be born almost. Mm. And so at its origin, it may have meant the children of the Africans who were born in the new world mm-hmm. were Creole. You know, we were really looking at this term of of Creole from a Black uh, perspective, but in definition and in its form, it really was about a mix of different cultures and races and ethnicities all coming together in Louisiana, again, after this period of emancipation. So you had some you know, obviously French settlers, you have um, both free and uh, formerly enslaved Africans. You have free people of color from Haiti who are in Louisiana at this time. And so it is a very um, unique amalgamation of of many different cultures um, that, you know, we see in a prevailing Black context in this story. And for me, you know, it's, it's not a community that, uh, growing up in Atlanta, you know, that I came into much contact with. And so, um, one of the beautiful things about High on the Hog 
is that um, we are constantly reminded that blackness is not monolithic and that even within our own um, race of and people, um, there are so many different histories and so many different traditions. And we really try to highlight and celebrate all of those this season in particular. Hmm. One of the things that comes out and it begins in that New Orleans episode is this discussion of, you know, owning land, working the land, Um, you know, with the horrors of enslavery, it's resulted in, for some, this cultural aversion to farming, to agriculture. But then there's also this idea, as we see in the New Orleans episode with the river scene, this idea sometimes of this missed opportunity to, to own land, to work the land, to eat from the land and steward the land, right? I mean, it is a little bit of a, a contradiction sometimes. And, and that's something that you really explore in the series. Yeah, I think it's really a larger question about what was lost and, and why it was lost. You know, I think for me, um, we were looking at specifically this, this notion of the plantation as a as a dirty word, as a triggering word, and really, I think rightfully something that especially Black Americans um, have tended to see as uh, not for us, or maybe even as a source of shame. And here we're looking at: is there space for a certain kind of reclamation? And and that this is where many of us, myself included have descended in that our survival and endurance and presence even here today is a remarkable source of pride, specifically around, you know, agrarian concerns, being detached from land for many cultures around and populations around the world has been a very disempowering and traumatic part of the, of their histories. Um, So in the same way that our um, arrival into this country was traumatic and based on agrarian matters, Black folks moving into urban epicenters created its own kinds of fissures and its own kinds of consequences, especially to the degree um, that there was, um, you know, self-sustainability on the land, if, if not escaping exploitation outright in the period of, you know, sharecropping, which happened after slavery, there is something to be said for having enough to feed yourself and your family and the autonomy that the land provides. I think a lot about that, about, you know, ownership, land ownership, how white supremacy creates barriers for that in communities of color in terms of disparities in generational wealth, you know, racist environmental and housing policies, redlining, you know, lending, but also that purchasing any kind of property is becoming more and more of an impossibility for younger generations right now. Are you seeing solutions to that um, in communities that you visit when you're working on series like this? It's a great question, actually. You know, I. I think that all of us, um, all industries really ought to be asking this question because, you know, statistically it is an issue that disproportionately impacts black people. But the fact that all of us are so disconnected from our food sources on the land has disproportionate consequences in all of our lives, namely in, in the way of healthcare um, and its accessibility challenges. So I, I do want to just name that um, as far as people who are, you know, doing 
work. I, I think there's housing justice organizations in most major cities that are often black led, um, you know, who are doing important work. Um, but it, it is very hard to really kind of get to the uncomfortable truths around why these things persist. And as you mentioned in the question, you know, so often in a kind of narrative framing, when we work on stories or histories that feel historic, that feel like they're in the past, that they're no longer with us, like slavery already happened, it often does not account for the evolution of the dispossession, right? So we talked about sharecropping and then we move into Jim Crow and now we don't even have uh, full franchise rights until the civil rights movement of the 1960s after redlining, which was mentioned. You know, I think that we all have our work cut out for us in terms of making the issue of not just housing, um, but really sovereignty more possible for a lot more people in our in our country. One of my favorite stories in the series was unpacking the history of the Pullman Porters and how trains contributed to the economy and food culture of Chicago's Black community. You met former porters, uh, Mr. Benjamin Gaines Sr., who was 99, and the son of a club car waiter, uh, Michael McGowings. You talk about the connection to your own family, but you also figured out something about your own origin story during that episode. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think um, this is a reference to um, me learning uh, that my grandfather was also a Pullman porter. You know, I think I knew that, but it was buried really like in the crevices of my mind. Um, and this is what I mean about things being more visceral um, than what you learn um, either from oral tradition or reading. Because sitting in this cart, you know, I really kind of understood how my grandfather arrived there and that I, I was able to see his trajectory and the importance of the railroad as a separate but related matter. I found out that he was actually, you know, a hobo hopping kid who found his way through the migration from the Deep South to Chicago um, worked in a mill and, um, ultimately ended up working for many years, retiring as a Pullman Porter. So, um, there's no way that I would have been able to connect the, the fullness of that history and really what it was like, you know, without having done the show and meeting someone like Mr. Gaines. You, uh, received passengers, you took them to their room, you made them comfortable. And uh, the Pullman cars had the best food because during the war, people used to ride the train just to eat good. They'd almost fight to get on the train, man, to, to get a good meal, you know. So that was a real personal highlight um, in the filming and just an incredible tradition that so many African-Americans are deeply connected to was part of that migration story. I think a lot of people will be surprised to learn that people got on trains for food because no one gets on planes for food, right? <laughs> no, 
That's right. So it seems as though a lot of local cuisine is developed by the kinds of foods that are found where you are, you know, mixed with the taste and techniques of where you've been. Um, So whether it's being enslaved or the great migration or the effects of gentrification, all of these patterns seem to mean that black cuisine evolves more creatively and at a greater pace than other kinds of food. Is that what you found? Because that's what it that's what appears to be when we watch the series. Yeah, I think evolution is just part of it becomes part of the identity um, because so much of our evolution is improvisational. You know, our kind of history as a people, as African-American people, is really a, a relatively new thing, which makes our impact on the world, you know, even more remarkable. Um, but the project of African Americans has only been around for um, a couple centuries, and we know about the origins too. And so, as we uh, have mentioned, as there is in every generation or generations, new forms of disenfranchisement, new forms of displacement, of dispossession, and then, of course, the fight for justice, the fight for equality and then, you know, the cycle that we um, seemingly are just locked in in perpetuity, it does require a vulnerable people or a vulnerable population to, in a sense, also move with the times. And so that has real visibility in our cuisines because cuisine is really a synonymous dialogue with the, the story of humans or with anthropology. Really, the story of food and the story of people is a story that is about migration. It's a Mm. story that is about um, knowledge, agricultural or hunting knowledge and acumen. And so as these things evolve, right, food doesn't become less essential. Food doesn't go away. Food also evolves with the, the movement of people and the movement of new information and, and mo- movement of markets as well. One of the things I love about the series is that you introduce us to chefs, you know, some like legacy chefs, some, you know, second generation chefs, and then some influencer chefs. And you also have a section on something that's very often overlooked when discussing cuisine, and that's the spirits and cocktails from that particular part of culinary culture. Yeah. Can you talk us about what you learned at that speakeasy at that bar when you were drinking that punch? By the way, I saw you get more than one cup of that punch that was not yeah, that was, on me. That was a good scene to record. <laughs> Yeah, that was with my homegirl, um, Tiffany. So, yeah, I mean, the speakeasies, again, embodied history in Harlem in particular. Speakeasies were a place to convene in a way that was both clandestine, but also well-known. And as we're talking about repeatedly a, a theme of displacement, having clandestine but well-known places of convening, um, you can imagine how these became central to our community, a place where information can be shared, where deals can be done, or where, honestly, you can just be a human and let off some steam, you know, in a speakeasy. It doesn't have to be that deep, too. We can just also remember we're talking about human nature and human beings. Prohibition was the backdrop to what really, like, the the light, the fire behind behind the Harlem Renaissance, because now there wasn't really a, a great place to go for entertainment anymore. The rest of the city was on lockdown. They were stopping downtown. 
in Harlem, that nightlife continued, and you already had all these top artists and intellectuals who were already here. I don't know if anything was kind of revealed so much um, other than the real density of the speakeasy. So I was thinking like, you know, maybe there's a couple here, a couple there, Um, but really it's a, it's a kind of generous definitions. And sometimes we're just talking about, you know, small um, parts of a basement or, or hallways, you know, that have been repurposed more or less. So I know it's in the show. I don't remember the exact density, but um, I know in a, a very small radius, um, there's like over a hundred speakeasies in Harlem. Wow. So you take us to Atlanta and you point out how restaurants and grocery stores helped fuel the civil rights movement. They were gathering places and organizing centers and a source of funding and occasion. And sometimes they were targets for civil disobedience. Tell us about showing us this different way that food sort of had this big influence in this moment um, in black history. Yeah, of course. And again, we see, you know, you can't divorce food from from virtually any subject. Um, It is the most human subject because it's the only thing that all humans have to engage in and it keeps us human. And so often, you know, when there is a group of people who are um, fighting for justice, fighting for equity, fighting for their rights, what they're also fighting for is their humanity. And so using food and using a convening space where food is served to remind and exert your humanity is very effective because you are essentially highlighting the absurdity and of the injustice of not being able to be in a room where food is being served and consumed just because of your race. When we went into Riches, we got on the elevator and rode up to the sixth floor mm-hmm. to sit in at the Magnolia Tea Room. And the manager came and said, what, what do y'all want? And we said, we just want to sit down and have a meal. And so the manager said, well, I'm going to have to call the police. And so my roommate and I were escorted with Reverend King and Lonnie King and a policeman who walked us from the front doors of Rich's department store to a police car. Okay. The kind of truth of that absurdity is also why these campaigns, these interventions were very effective. And in the, in the way that things went viral back in the day, the, the volume of that truth and that absurdity was well documented and well publicized and created a lot of similar activation. So what started in actually Greensboro, North Carolina, came to Atlanta and moved through many very courageous, very young people, college students, to whom all of us have our, um, you know, freedoms and our moniker as a democracy to thank. Because when, when you have citizens who don't have the full right of the franchise, the voting franchise, then the democracy is not real. And and they made that real for us, um, for all of us. So it was um, just so incredible to meet these living legends and icons in my hometown. It was so humbling and I truly will never forget it. 
So another big theme in the series, um, at least one that I've picked up on, was intersectionality, generational intersectionality, queer and black intersectionality, historical intersectionality. And, and I'm wondering how important is it for you to show, you know, many facets of these stories and communities when you're figuring out who to talk to for this series? Because there's just so much diversity in all of these episodes. Totally. Um, thanks for, for noticing. It's a great question. I think in order to make it feel like modern, right, or contemporary, rather, this is where we are, you know, um, to not have the full spectrum. And we still obviously can't, there's only so much we can do, but to show a fuller spectrum um, around Black identity, even and especially in food, opens up so many other conversations that move across many different industries and communities. I found it really difficult to find Black queer community here in Los Angeles. So I decided to, to make something. A small brunch blossomed into this loving gathering of Black and Brown queer folks. I love that. The Supper Club really reminded me that I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. As has been said, Black people are not a monolith. And I do love the way that we were able to bring creators, um, you know, street vendors, my guys selling watermelons in Harlem, you know, um, is part of an amazing legacy. Mm. So we do everything. We juice them, we bowl them, they make salads with them. Mm. They start to gel a rind. That's like a little snack. Got it. But it's healthy. It's, and the rind, you know, the rind had the most nutrition inside of it. Okay, cool. You know I'm saying the green parts. So I know that. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot about this one. It's super food. Looking at an entrepreneur from Harlem uh, like Cha McCoy and, and all of her kind of aspirations. It's it's really important to see for all of us ourselves in our fullness because when we have stories about black people that are redundant, that are limiting and are also expansive and pervasive, it makes um the stakes even higher for stories about black people. Um, that are also expansive, but in a way that feels so intellectually and visually and on the screen. And so I was happy that we were able to um, to show some of the diversity within our own community. Hmm. So among the people that you spotlight are food activists. And I'm wondering, um, how would you define a food activist? And do you see yourself as a food activist? Mm. I would not identify as an activist, I, although I have been accused of such a thing. Um, I think the real activists are people who really organize others around matters of food. I think I more maybe galvanize or inspire, but activism is it's really work that is is about mobilizing people. Um, and big ideas to to create action. My activist lens to which I started thinking about food was inspired by the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And I think they were so brilliant by looking at this intersection of poverty, malnutrition, and institutional racism in the late 60s and 70s. They were visionaries. I'm a bit more, I guess, philosophical in my approach in that I think that it's important to first and foremost, get people to think more deeply about food. 
um, in that if I can help people develop a deeper emotional connection to food, that it opens up the capacity for an organizer to make an impression or to um, use their new emotional attachment to be um, called to do some other higher work in the food system. Um, so maybe I'm just saying all of this to let myself off the hook for not um, really mobilizing more effectively, but I have so much respect for real food activists. And I think in particular, you see this around folks who are, um, you know, using community gardens and community spaces to, to feed their own communities. Um, folks who are uh, fighting for um, free lunch for children um, in public school and of all ages, you know, soda taxes. I mean, you could go on and on, but there's so many different ways that we're seeing of effective food um, activism right now. So near the end of the series, you have a dinner party and you're pondering this big question about the future of black food. And at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about how you watched chefs on TV growing up and that's what inspired you to get into food. And I'm thinking about a generation now that's watching TikToks and Instagram reels and has such a broader access to ingredients than, you know, even you had probably growing up because food, you get food from everywhere now. Yeah. So what do you think the future of black food could look like given what things look like today compared to even when you were growing up? Limitless. All borders must come down. I think <laughs> like it's limitless. I don't actually know. And I love that feeling. I think that what has happened is not just a erasure of uh, cuisines and context of of like how we learned, which was a hierarchy of, of French and everything through that lens. They're connecting in real time with other chefs from all over the world who were being raised on totally different influences than we were raised on and seeing it in pop culture and film and cinema. White supremacy is not limited to white people. And a lot of us have baked in those ideologies, right? That this food doesn't matter unless it's in a certain publication. Mm. If we don't see it on a certain TV show, it doesn't matter. Our job is to liberate our minds from that idea that if X, Y, and Z doesn't like it, then it doesn't mean anything. And so we don't know. And I, hope I can be here for um, what this next evolution of Black food will be. I know that I hope, um, at least in our own, my home country, that part of it, you know, to bring it back around is is connected to more agrarian matters and remembering that, you know, no matter how far we, we go creatively, um, that our roots as African-American people really is as an agrarian people and as West Africans before that. Um, And I think that in solving for that and keeping that central, there's a lot of other things that come with that, like the strength of a community, like a healthier community and like more economic sovereignty. So I hope that that's in the middle of this future. Well, Stephen, you probably get this question a lot, but I'm going to finish with it anyway. Um, What are you having for dinner tonight? Oh, good question. Um, I actually don't usually know what's for dinner. Um, I'm way better at, you know, thinking and talking about food than I am actually eating like three square meals a day. 
Um, I can almost guarantee you that I eat fries or like <laughs> potato chips at some point every day. So that's probably in my future. Steven Satterfield, season two of High in the Hog was really fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me on You Can't Make This Up to talk about it. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for the great questions. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Steven Satterfield. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. Listening. 